um, when we when we com- say contrast the the worldly conditions with with Dhamma, with the truth, uh, we begin to understand, the, say, say our own cultural attitude, which very much affirm a, a kind of soul-like entity, a, separ- a kind of permanent or absolute separation. Even though maybe not actually stated or believed in, and sometimes it's just the way things appear and the way the assumptions we make. And one can live a whole life, say, in particular with particular assumptions in one's mind without even realizing that that's all they are. So the self, you see, is the question, big question mark for the Buddhists. It's an investigation of what self is or is not. When you're m- contemplating Dhamma now, it's, you're, you're, just, you're not taking a stand against self as a kind of denial and rejection of self, but what is it? What exactly is it? And you have to ask that question, who am I? What is myself? Well, uh, is it, is, is it uh, permanent or impermanent? Is it something that is real, real or just self-created? Is it, is it agreed? Is it, is it hatred, delusion? Is it absolute? With modern psychology, oftentimes the emphasis is always to to affirm a self or make a positive self, a positive statement about oneself. So I am a good person, or I am, as contrast to the the fears that one may be worthless or unlovable. But that's not really the answer either. It's just uh, uh, going in the other direction which means that the two really depend on each other. If I'm a good person, also there's the doubt and and fear of being a bad one. So when I hear people talking about themselves in these kind of affirmative ways, I I realize it's a kind of attempt to to, uh, stamp out the other, the fear that they might be useless and unlovable and, and of no value. Then there's the modern theory that you have to have a, a well-developed ego in order to travel the spiritual path. That's a very kind of modern, uh, westernized version. You have to develop a really strong ego and healthy ego in order to be able to let go of it. But that's another view and opinion, isn't it? In Buddhism, you notice that the emphasis is it's not on developing a good ego, but on doing good. You know, around saying, we want our children to have good, healthy egos. But in Buddhist countries, you want your children to do good things, to, to be kind, to be generous. Not, not to go around saying, we want you to have a healthy ego, buster. 
So, in, say, in the Buddhist country, the ideal is to train the children uh, with with uh, inclinations towards kindness and generosity, rather than ideas that they are good people or good have good egos. Because there's no point in starting in even teaching children or anyone with with basic delusions, is there? If you're teaching an ego as a kind of something one should have, even a good ego, it's still you're still connecting it to a to a bad ego because good and bad uh, go together. I mean, if one's attached to good, then then bad is also going to be there. But in actual living experiences, uh, say doing good, in which you're is is uh, is its own reward, isn't it? When you when you do good things and are kind and generous, then you begin to experience the, the, the joy of, of being that way. And to do bad or selfish or mean or divisive things, you can, you can see is brings a lot of pain and misery to oneself and to others. So I don't necessarily agree with this idea of developing a good, strong ego. Because I think all of us really have probably very strong egos already. I mean, the ego's never been a great problem with me. Not that I was lacking, had a weak ego, I had a very powerful one. But what I did lack, uh, as a, as a lay person, it was was real understanding of things, and uh, because of an ego, there was always this threat and and uh, fear of others and jealousies and competitions. And <coughs> Then the spiritual life, and the, say the purpose of the meditation, Buddhist meditation, is to investigate the ego, or the sense of a self, or a separate being. To this, this, this way of looking into the way things are, is the attitude of the Buddhist uh, meditation. I remember we're doing a lot of meditation on I am during the early years of my monastic life because of the kind of vanity and ego conceit that I suffered from. I had to really look at it, not judge it or suppress it, but really know exactly what it is. So I'd, I'd listen to it. I'd practice inner listening. I'd listen to my myself. Either in the positive side, I'm, I'm really a very good, wonderful character, uh, destined to be a very important person, advisor to the United Nations. 
highly respected, adored, or maybe, who knows, the first American Arahant, the first, first West Coast Arahant, who knows. Maybe a Bodhisattva or something. And then, because when I listen to that, I take it on to, to absurdity, where you think you're, you're the Buddha, in fact, or the Messiah of the age. And listen to it. It's taking, say, uh, megalomania to its ultimate. And I listen to myself. Not in order to believe it or to convince myself <coughs> that that is in any way real, but to just be able to say the things you don't, a modest and, and well-educated and proper kind of young man would never dare to admit in, to anyone or even to himself. Uh, we have these illusions about ourselves trying to be modest and not oh, uh, overestimate ourselves or to to brag is, is disgusting isn't it to brag and boast and to to think or to assume that you're you're better than anyone else is is you know is something you just would never say in public at all even though you might be thinking it so I decided to just think and deliberately think all the things I didn't dare or that were forbidden or considered uh, inappropriate or, or vulgar or, or uh, wrong. Just to be able to, to watch the thought process to see I am the greatest guy in the whole world as merely a thought that goes through the mind rather than than, than believe it or disparage it or make anything out of it. It's just a thought. And this is an investigation. wasn't wasn't, wasn't an affirmation. Because then I go to the, to the opposite. I think all the, the things I'm most afraid of. What am I most afraid of? What do I most dread? What, what, what are my dreads in life? What would I most not want anyone to know and would want and, and what am I most ashamed of and frightened of and worried about and all this? What is it? And from there going from one one kind of extreme of from the, the sup- most superior to the to the inferior. And this in, inner listening was just Listening to the, the uh, to, uh, you, you'd be observing, uh, like some of these things would bring a lot of feeling into your mind. And if you're thinking, uh, if you're thinking a really uh, outrageous thought about yourself, the judgment, the old judge in the in the head starts get, uh, starts off, doesn't it? I'm thinking you're the you're the greatest. American of them all, really. What a stupid thing to say. You shouldn't be thinking like that. Because the old judge up in the noodle doesn't like that. He's going to criticize you for thinking that outrageous thought. And thinking of the word, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'll never amount to anything. I'm a hopeless case. 
I'm totally unlovable, and and nobody ever has really appreciated me, and maybe there's nothing to appreciate. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> Used to think that everyone was too coarse and too screwed up to appreciate me, but now I'm afraid that probably there's nothing there to anyone appreciate, even if they're coarse and screwed up. <laughs> And then the old judge says, <laughs> don't be silly, amazing. <laughs> then think of fair thought, one that is to totally acceptable on all levels, of intelligent, educated, well-bred company. Uh, I hear in the kind of proper English people, modest characters. Just the, the the proper way of thinking, the totally acceptable way of thinking about yourself and things like that. And that's just another thought. Because with the with with the investigation of the of say of the mind, you you can you can you make it interesting. So you can begin to to dare to think the, the things that before you've always been frightened of. Not to believe them, but, or to act on them, but to just see them in a perspective as, as thought rather than as Mara or temptation or latent tendencies or things to be worried about or terrible flaws in your character or whatever. Now the investigation then is that fact that it begins and ends. Any thought begins and ends. And you, you're noticing the beginning of a thought because when you're deliberately thinking, I am the greatest American of them all, it, it, it has a beginning, doesn't it? So before you think it, you observe. There's no thought, is there? No thought there. I, that's the beginning. There's this space before, and the greatest American of them all ends. Now that's an outrageous thought, isn't it, in its quality? But in its in its uh, characteristic, it's a Nietzsche dukkanata. That's all. It's impermanent, and and uh, it's uh, it's not a perfect thing. It's not. It's a. Uh, it's a very imperfect, unsatisfactory thing in itself. Thinking a thought is never—you can't try to try to find any thought that that you can that you can really hold on to. I mean, you have to keep thinking them over and over again. The thought moves so quickly through the mind. So to depend on thought as a kind of refuge or a perception as as anything worth grasping, and you see it, you realize that its very nature is to be unsatisfactory. It can't satisfy us. <coughs> and then it, it, you can't find any, even I'm the greatest American of them all. Even though that says I am, and it sounds like a self, it's merely just a, a collection of words put together, isn't it? I can't find any self in it, really. 
could be nonsense. I could say something that's nonsense. I am a, I am a, I am the sun and moon, or I am the whatever. And you could put uh, put it in any form you want, but in in reflection on it as Anicca Dukkanata, you're looking at the what arises ceases, what begins ends. Now in, in investigation we note in beginning and ending rather than, the, than, than giving a second thought to the quality or the content. I'm the greatest American of them all is a silly thought. I put silly on it, isn't it? That's a judgment, isn't it? It's a silly thought. It's outrageous. But I- if you just see it as thought, that which arises ceases. You can do that, can't you? I can. I can just, I can go and judge it and say, what a stupid thing to think. Or I can just observe it for what it is. There's that which arises and ceases, because that's what it's doing. That's what it does. It begins and ends. Then the, the, uh, The quality of it isn't the issue anymore, is it? Whether it's intelligent or stupid or good or bad, true or false. Now this applies to all forms of thinking. You know, outrageous, foolish, conceited, pride, prideful, dirty thinking, uh, evil thinking, uh, whatever it is. In the, the, we're, not, we're not judging the quality anymore, but noticing the, the characteristics of it as anicca dukkha nata. And so this is a deliberate, a deliberate uh, intention of the mind, to see it as it is, because that's all it is, isn't it? It arises and ceases. Where the the quality has the appearance of of more than what it is, isn't it? I am the greatest American of them all is, can be seen as, uh, we, we can proliferate on that. What a silly thought, or I shouldn't think like that, or if I'm really, you know, believe it, then I, then I uh, can go on, get carried away with a fantasy world, whole conceptual proliferation from that one thought. Well, I'm not seeing it as it is, I'm just being entranced by the quality of it, the content, and carrying on from that, because the mind, if you get caught in that mode of thinking, uh, associative thinking, where I'm the greatest American of them all, and the mind will start going on and on and proliferating on that. But reflective reflection on it is seeing it merely as as it actually is, or what it is in the present moment. It's not a person. It's nothing. It's 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 not it's not something that uh, is going to satisfy anyone or anything worth grasping at, and it's not, and it's, and it's impermanent. And that's a way of, of knowing and seeing it in a very clear and direct way. Because that, those three characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha, Nata are, 
I just met the, the, the statement of the way it is about any condition whatsoever. And thought itself, of course, is, is something that we can, deliberately, we can deliberately think, can't we? We can choose to think right now, rather than just trying to stop thinking. Like how many of you just want to stop thinking? You're fed up with thinking and would like to turn it off, switch it off. And the more you try to stop thinking out of aversion to it, the more you think. At least I used to do. I used to try to stop thinking. Then I'd become upset. My mind would go berserk with thoughts. But then I thought, well, I'll think. Deliberately think. Since I'm since I'm trying to stop thinking and I can't do it, then uh, maybe if I deliberately think, that'll be better. Uh, so I started using mantras and I used to practice letting go. I developed this mantra around let go. I'll think, just let go. And, and that's all I'll be thinking all the time is let go rather than conceptually proliferating. And that worked because, well, my mind just began to... to to be thinking of letting go all the time. Let go, let go, let go, let go, and keep that going. Eventually the, the uh, tendency to, to wander in thought would stop. And that was a way of just guarding and being vigilant of the mind uh, and beginning to notice when I wasn't thinking, to be aware when, when there was no thought. Then to investigate thought itself. I deliberately would think. If I'm the most egotistical person in the world, inflated ego, well, what, do, what are the thoughts, what do you really think about yourself, tomato? What is it you really think? Think out loud. Just think, it, think it to yourself. What do what you really think you are as a personality? You think you're a, a, a pleasant, uh, charming, uh, delightful person? Do you dare to think that? Do you dare to think that, that you are actually a, a delightful, charming, lovable character? Or do you think, would you be more kind of at ease thinking something like, well, you know, I'm not too bad, but you know, I'm not the best either. And there's, you know, I guess I'm just an average guy, really. I'm not terrible. I'm not particularly wonderful. I mean, at least on that level, you feel safe, don't you? If you're not going to extreme, <laughs> and you got a modesty. Well, I know I'm not the best person in the world. I'm not the worst either. Because <laughs> that's the way one tends to be conditioned. I was conditioned to perceive myself. You didn't. You didn't go around in my family, go around claiming you were better than others. And you made modesty even implied that you dared to admit you might be, you might not be as good as others. It's better to say that than to go around saying you're better. The old Christian, I was brought up one of those devout Christian families where they, where you think I am unworthy of your love, O oh Lord. I am a sinner. I am filled with sin. 
That was allowable to talk like that. <laughs> it was harder to, hard, more difficult for me to think really arrogant thoughts, actually. Uh, didn't, I wasn't, I had to differently, was more critical of myself than than, um, say, overestimating. But there were tendencies towards both extremes. But in this investigation of the self, you know, it doesn't matter, does it? The most outrageous, con- outrageously conceited thought, the most miserable, meanest, nasty thought, or the most mediocre blah-blah thought is, is anicca dukkanata. With, with the altruism of the monastic life also, like non-violence, non-killing, celibacy, uh, and all these very uh, high, high-minded uh, moral ideals. So, just observing the tendency to want to kill mosquitoes. Can't kill mosquitoes when you're a monk not supposed to kill them. And then, because of that, you think you're supposed to have some kind of loving kindness for them. So you try to, you try to spew forth this kind of, may you be happy, oh mosquitoes, kind of thing. That's all right, but, but the, uh, then I'd, I'd start listening to these things of uh, hating them. Um, I'd, if, if I, I'd bring up the, the annoyance and the anger that I might really be feeling towards them. I want to kill them. I want to squash them. And I'd listen as a Nietzsche Dukanata. Rather than go around thinking, oh, you shouldn't think like that. You're a bhikkhu. You should have loving kindness for those. They have just as much right to be here as anyone else. And, and you shouldn't be thinking those bad things. Because my intention was not to kill them, wasn't it? My intention through the through the discipline of the monk is not to kill. <coughs> so I had no intention to kill them, and no, uh, there was no intention to do so. So I could begin to watch the anger, the hatred, the aversion that I might actually be feeling towards them, or towards some of the monks that I knew, and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> So that it was a, a, because I had no intention. My intention was to not harm, not do anything bad. But so I could feel, I felt confident and safe in looking at anger and hatred and all that, that, that I might actually be feeling. And actually thinking those thoughts was not an attempt to, to, to cause harm to anyone, but to investigate the nature of thought as it manifested through anger, aversion, lust, delusion, fear, jealousy. But 
Now this is a kind of, uh, also, it's a kind of relief to be able to think something that maybe you've been afraid of your whole life. But you know, but your intention is is no longer to to uh, to criticize or form opinions about it, but just to to observe it for what it is, to see it exact exactly for what it is, rather than as a personal flaw, something personal. It's you're seeing it for what it is. It's a nicca dukkha anatta, rather than a personal flaw a problem, a fault. And you're, you're looking at it in the context of, of your mind so that it arises and ceases in the mind, doesn't it? You're aware of it when, it, when at the beginning and at, through the process and of the thought, of the, connect, the thought, the words, and then the end of it. So that's a mindfulness and mindful investigation of a of a thought or a sentence. I am I am comes forth, exists and disappears. And this word existence means to come forth or spring forth. So when people say God doesn't exist, the Christians get very upset by that. They don't believe in the existence of God. But actually, that's a true statement. If you, if you think, uh, if God exists, then God is impermanent. God is a nita dukkanata, if, if a God is, is, is something that exists. Because existence is what comes forth in consciousness, isn't it? Things don't exist unless they they come into consciousness, and then they then they and and they and then they cease. So all existence is impermanent. And th- this word "exist" means to bring forth. So in, when we say God doesn't exist, that actually. We're, we're pointing to a truth. And God isn't a condition that is born and dies and is dependent upon consciousness of a human being, is it? Getting beyond existence. But in our own use of our, of our language, we tend to think, Ajahn Tomato said God doesn't exist. Oh. <laughs> Then, then that would be quite upsetting. What if the Bishop of Durham said God doesn't exist? Imagine the, the kind of uh, interesting reaction in this country. And, and, he'd be, and only the Buddhists probably would understand him. One of the interesting insights into Buddha Dhamma is the fact that it it uh, it doesn't it is not this dualistic uh, where if something doesn't exist then it then it it uh, it means that there's nothing whatsoever. 
that there isn't any God at all. Because if God doesn't exist, then there's no God at all. Because when we're, we're meditating now, we're really looking at how the mind works. looking at how the mind works and we can see that that what exists ceases and that doesn't mean we're on that we're kind of uh, no longer breathing seeing hearing smelling tasting touching or even thinking that when something ceases a thought ceases there's still knowing there's clarity brightness if you if you investigate like this you you see, if when when you die, when I am ceases, when you don't exist anymore, what's left? Never think of it like that. When I don't exist. You can create something again, you know, come into existence again, like I am, a, I am the most important American of the century, or I shouldn't think like that. That's a stupid thought. Uh, we're not supposed to be thinking in those exaggerated ways. I'm just a, you know, maybe just an average American. And uh, maybe I'm, and then I can think of when I was 10 years old, or what happened? What will happen to me in the next ten years? The year two thousand. Where will I be? And then, what did I do? And the things I've done in the past. And I was born, and and I went to school, and I did this, and I did that. And we can keep going. We can keep existing as uh, through the I am. We can keep up this sense of existing, of being somebody that exists. But when that ceases. What remains? What is there? The cessation of that which exists. You don't exist anymore. When you notice that, when you don't exist anymore, when you're aware, realize the cessation, the death of yourself, when you realize that, then that realization, what is it that realizes? What is it that can realize? And if you start naming it as me or mine, you, that, you, you get caught up again. The Buddha was, was stripping the mind of, of his disciples, stripping their minds of attachment, to anything whatsoever. So he was quite uh, relentless in his approach. He didn't budge an inch in his teaching. He just keep pulling everything away from us until we began to feel totally at ease by not being attached to anything. And that's what you're doing in meditation, isn't it? You're just letting go of ev everything and your most precious, treasured attachment 
you finally begin to just let go of and begin to realize the freedom, the liberation, the peace of non-attachment, non-existence, not being anybody, not having any name, not having to become anything. But not being nobody either. You're not thinking, I'm nobody. It's not that. It's not going around saying, I'm nobody. I don't exist. The, the whole thinking process is observed and and then you're no longer caught up into into this, this conceptual proliferation, the papancha. It no longer means anything to you. It no longer deludes you and pulls you around, controls you. Now these are rather interesting, aren't they? Ways of, of contemplating. This is what I'm suggesting tonight. It's just just a way of, of contemplating and looking at the self. All your fears about what you might be or do or become or the guilt you feel about things you've done in the past or remorse and the, the blame and what you think of others. And I, I used to also listen to myself blaming others. a lot of grudges and resentments so I think uh, I'd bring those up into my mind and he did that to me in the Navy I had a really traumatic experience while in the Navy I used to bring that up and bring it up because it used to enrage me one of the few times I've ever really wanted to murder somebody was when I was in the Navy I could see I could feel this really strong desire to murder somebody. You did me wrong. And uh, and I listened to that as just the begins and ends. And somehow the 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 power of that thought just it began to didn't seem like much of anything after a while. That perception would come up and it was just what it is. It's nothing, nothing, nothing more than that. Where before that perception would come in and I could be carried away with it. You can't do that to me. Even after years, you know, one could still get into a real flap about whenever that perception was triggered off. But when you, when I looked at it for what it really is, through, through seeing it as a, something that begins and ends, it, its power was lost. It lost its power. It's just what that is something that begins and ends. Remember, I used to think, because I have a high mind, I've always been very altruistic character, so I don't like being mean, or I always hated having these nasty thoughts or anything like that. I hated it. So I used to think, you should be able to forgive. Forgive that person for what they've done. 
You know, I could do it up here, but in the heart, no. I forgive you. In the heart, you say, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a conflict, wasn't there, between up here, the, this which was fair and rational and intelligent saying, you know, you should forgive. It's not right to carry those things around. You should be able to forgive. Uh, like Jesus did on the cross. They, they're torturing him and they're nailing him to a cross and making fun of him. And, and, and that person never did that to you. I mean, you just, you know, you weren't nailed to a cross or anything. And you're all very rational. But something in here, wasn't it? A strong, uh, strong emotion was, was, would come from that perception. So rather than just trying to dismiss it by thinking that, that I shouldn't feel that way, I'd, I'd think that, deliberately think it and feel it, and, and, it would, and its power to delude and, and carry on in the old patterns started fading out. like a balloon that's been, been punctured, like a soap bubble. A soap bubble can look big and menacing, can it? This enormous soap bubble coming, you don't quite know what it is. It looks solid, and you just, it's gone, where is it? Can't even find a trace of it. Maybe a slight little damp stain on your chivora. having this retreat with the terrors is very pleasant actually really enjoying it to have uh, time to be with because we don't really have much you know, we kind of barrel into Amravati and the next day they're off welcoming them then then saying goodbye to them. Pity Sorrow and Ajahn Tabasa and that's usually hello and goodbye. <laughs> Pama Wangso. I've captured Ajahn Ananda for the holy trait and he can't get away. But usually with him it's like hello, goodbye. <laughs> Well, this is what you know in your when you're during your time now this month this investigation of Dhamma and don't be don't be frightened and really look at things and, and look at things that really that you're frightened of but look at look at them with this attitude of investigation rather than of judgment or, or making anything out of them because you're seeing them as they really are rather than than uh, judging them or, or reacting to them uh, out of your feelings about them. 
where sometimes in some of you you're so so high-minded that you 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 feel you, you know you feel that even if you're thinking a bad thought that that somehow some terrible karmic uh, result is going to descend on you for thinking that don't you some of you are so kind of uh, obsessed with purity that that any kind of anything any wrong thought even that God is going to up in the sky is going to come down and and um, beat you up. You're going to have to pay for it. So, in, but if we're just thinking bad thoughts out of heedlessness and stupidity, that that might very well be true. We have to pay for that. But if we look at the nature of thought and begin to investigate thought, and our intention is not to harm or cause any or cause any any wrong or harm to anybody. Then we can, that that intention we, we make. That's what we're here for, isn't it? Keeping the precepts, living this life. Our intention is to realize nibbana, and so and and our intention is to do good and refrain from doing evil. So we can now begin to have the courage and fearlessness to really look at fear and anger and, and all these things for what they are, because. Our intention now is not one to to act or to uh, on those on those feelings, but to observe them for what they are, and that's the way out of suffering. It's only when you allow these miserable things into your mind and see them for what they are that they cease. But that doesn't mean to indulge in them either. To go around looking for something wrong or to, to imagine that there is something wrong or something you shouldn't do. The more you investigate, the more you see it's just always here and now. If I feel I'm, I should look at my anger, that very thought is a, is a, I look at, I should investigate my anger, is arises and ceases. And if I start thinking, I should investigate my anger, then I start trying to investigate it, I usually get caught up into it, making a, a problem about it. So you're, you're looking at more at the immediacy of the way things are, rather than, than thinking, I have to do something about my anger, and then, then trying to uh, look at anger with the idea of, from the view that it's something that's yours. But there is, if, if there's anger or there's fear or thing, whatever happens, the way the way things happen to be, you can use skillful means to examine and investigate them. Not because you should, but because that is the, what you can actually do. And with, in, uh, and until you really, uh, when you really understand it, then the then the way is of non-attachment. Letting go or non-attachment, letting things cease, not making any problems about anything, not creating any anything onto anything else. There's a way of trust and ability to to respond to the changing conditions of this sensory realm. So I offer this for your reflection.